Well, look, this morning when I woke up and I looked outside and I saw how gloomy it was and I thought, here we go, another day with no sunshine. We had a beautiful day Sunday, but since then it's kind of gone back down. We're just in for some rainy, cloudy days. I thought, you know, tonight would be a good night to preach on depression. And so that's what I'm going to preach about tonight. Because sometimes even the weather, the weather can't make you literally clinically depressed, but the weather can put a spirit of downness on you. Or it kind of pull you down and make you a little gloomy. And so tonight I want to talk about depression. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open it please, to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. And in just a moment... We're going to be looking at the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament and thinking about a time in his life when he went through some serious, serious depression. In fact, in his particular case, his depression was so severe that he did not even want to live anymore. And so depression undealt with can lead to that. Now, Tonight, as I begin this message, I want to just read you some things that I find very interesting about depression. And maybe as I'm going through this tonight, I want you to kind of think about, have you ever struggled with this? These feelings and emotions that I'm going to be describing tonight, have you ever gone through a time like that? Somebody has said that discouragement is like a thunderstorm, kind of like that storm we had last night. It was intense. But it was over with pretty quickly. And then the lights came back on. We could all watch TV or do whatever you were doing last night, read. It was, it was quick, but it didn't last long. Depression, on the other hand, is like a heavy fog that sets in and it just won't lift. In other words, it won't go away. It won't pass. And so that's the difference between discouragement and depression. All of us deal with discouragement. Something happens and it takes the air out from under our sails. It disappoints It uh, disappoints us, and that's one thing. But when it becomes a fog that just sets in, that's something else. Did you know that 17 million Americans develop clinical depression each year? 17 million. It is the least leading cause of disability worldwide. In other words, some people's depression is so severe that they can't function fully, and they can't they can't do their jobs. By the year 2020, which is next year, it is expected to be the single largest health care expense. And so think about that. More money will be spent on treating depression than on heart disease, on cancer, or on any of these other diseases that are so prevalent today. So depression is a real thing, and no one is immune from depression. I think sometimes we have the idea that depression is a weak man's disease. A depression is something you go through if you just don't have it all together and you, you just can't get with it and you can't deal with life and you're kind of weak. And those are the type of people who get depressed. Well, let me read you a list of people in the Bible who struggled with depression and you tell me whether you would describe these people as weak. You don't have to answer out loud because the answer is no. First of all, Moses struggled with depression. Moses was no weak man. God used him to lead two million Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. Moses is what we would call a man's man. And yet, there were times when he despaired even of his own life. The prophet Jonah, another strong man, got so depressed on one occasion that he said to God, God, it would be better for me to die than it would to live. Through the Psalms, we read that the psalmist repeatedly 
uh, struggled with depression. And he's even, at one, on, in one psalm, we find the psalmist talking to himself and saying, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why so disquieted within me? In other words, the psalmist was saying to himself, What's wrong with you? And, uh, you know, snap, you need to snap out of this. And yet he was having a great difficulty snapping out. Now, how about John the Baptist? Now, John the Baptist, you talk about a strong man. Here is this prophet, uh, the last of the Old Testament prophets. We read about him in the New Testament, but he was the last prophet prophesying the coming of Jesus. And so, John the Baptist is down there in the southern part of Israel, out there dressed in, in camel, you know, just in camel skin, and he, he's eating locust and wild honey and living out in the desert. And he's very bold. He's telling the religious leaders they need to repent and get right with God. In fact, on one occasion, John the Baptist was baptizing, and the religious leaders came to be baptized by him. And you talk about courageous. John the Baptist looked at them and said, You brood of vipers, who told you to flee the wrath to come? I mean, he is challenging the established religion of that time. So John the Baptist was a man's man, and yet we read in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist became so depressed, he, he was depressed because he had put in, been put in prison for his faithfulness to God, and in prison, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, he said to two of his disciples, go to Jesus and ask him if he is truly the Christ. John the Baptist was so depressed, he was beginning to wonder if Jesus was the Christ, and John the Baptist had baptized Jesus. He knew he was the Christ. He had seen the dove come down from heaven, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. He had heard the voice from heaven about Jesus being God's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And so if anybody knew that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and Savior of the world, it was John the Baptist, and yet in his depression... He began to question that. Have you noticed that when you get down, you start questioning things you never have questioned before? You start wondering about things you never have wondered about before, and John the Baptist did that. Another person who struggled with depression was the Apostle Paul. We know he was a strong man, and in a moment, we'll see tonight in the Bible about Elijah. Now, there was a New Testament scholar who's gone to be with the Lord now, but his name was John Stott. Dr. Stott lived well up into his late 80s, maybe well into his 90s, a godly, godly man. And he said this, the Christian's two chief occupational hazards are discouragement and depression. Now you think about that. Here's a man who walked with God for all these years and looking back on his life and looking back on the lives of others with whom he had, to whom he had ministered, he said, I think Christians have two things they have to guard against more than anything else. You would think he might have said temptation or, you know, lust or something like that. No, discouragement and depression. He said they are our occupational hazards. Someone has said that discouragement and depression are two of the devil's favorite tools. And he sometimes goes to the tool shop and he says, I'm going to take out the discouragement tool and the depression tool and I'm going to use it against God's child and I'm going to pull them down. And he's very effective at doing that many times. This statistic interested me. It said 23% of pastors have battled depression. Roughly one out of four, you go to church, whether you go here or somewhere, one out of four pastors you hear preach have struggled, with, have struggled with depression, and one of those pastors was a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's probably the most influential pastor 
in, uh, well, probably in the history of the church with the exception of the Apostle Paul. Charles Haddon Spurgeon pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England for many years. He would preach his sermons on Monday. Somebody would type those up for him, or he'd preach them on Sunday, rather. On Monday, somebody would type his sermons up for him, and then as the week went on, he would kind of edit the typing of the sermon, and they would get those printed up, and they used to sell them in London for a penny a sermon. Now, some of you think my sermons are about, that's about what they'd be worth. But a penny would buy you one of Spurgeon's sermons, and as the years went by, all those sermons got collected, and he that all got put together in a big uh, set of commentaries or preaching sermons. I think it's 61 volumes. I have that set of commentaries, and my dad has the same set, that set of sermons. His sermons all got put together. You talk about an influential person. Next to the Apostle Paul, I can assure you this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is the most read pastor of all time. More pastors read his sermons than anybody else's sermons. And yet Spurgeon said this, Fits of depression come over most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The storms are not always, the strong are not always vigorous. The wise are not always ready. The brave are not always courageous. The joyous are not always happy. I'm telling you, an incredibly influential pastor is saying, I know what depression feels like. In fact, we read in history that when he, Spurgeon was pastoring in the 1800s, and as he pastored that church, there would be times he would get so depressed that he would leave England for extended periods of time and go to places like Paris or other places where the weather was better. For one thing, sometimes this weather can, you know, play with us a little bit, and he would go to somewhere where there was more sunshine because many days in London are kind of like what we're having today, and he would be away from his congregation for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. In fact, one time Spurgeon became so depressed that he resigned his church. He said, you deserve a pastor who is stronger than I am, who has it together better than I do, and so I'm going to resign, and the leaders in the church and the church themselves refused to accept his resignation, but the point is he knew a little bit about it. Speaking of uh, England, Winston Churchill called depression, now Churchill, you think Churchill was weak? He called depression a black dog chasing him down. Churchill saying, no matter how strongly I lead the nation or what I might do, I feel like I have this black dog on my heels, and that black dog for him was depression. Another man said, I'm now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. Now, whoever wrote that was depressed. And I'll tell you who wrote it, Abraham Lincoln. He said, what I'm feeling now is so bad, if you spread it out on everybody, everybody would be miserable. And so... I think we would all consider Lincoln to be the greatest president of American history, and yet he's saying, I know something about depression. So maybe the way for me to begin tonight is to give you a definition of what depression is. And so if you want to jot this down, you certainly can. But depression has been defined as a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that leads to sadness. 
So here is depression at its core. It is a feeling. It is emotion, an emotion. It is a thought process that looks at one, a person looks at his life and looks at the situations in his life and feels helpless and feels like I'm up against some things that I can't control. That's always at the root of depression. We have lost control, we feel, of our own lives. And so I'm helpless. And that feeling of helplessness can lead to hopelessness because a person then would naturally conclude, I have nothing to look forward to because if I can't change the situation, that means the situation is always going to be exactly like it is right now. So now the person who's struggling with this has lost hope for the future. That leads to sadness, and that's what is depression. When you look out into your future and, and you say, it's never going to get any better. It's never going to change. I'm never going to snap out of this. I'm going to be like this till the day I die. Well, that takes hope out of you. Remember what the Scripture says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's in Proverbs. And so if we lose hope, we are in serious, serious trouble. I read this number that is, that is staggering and terribly sad. 40,000 Americans take their own lives each year. Why, do they take, why, why are people taking their lives? Because they've lost hope. They can't change whatever it is about their life they want to change. At least they think they can't. And they look to the future, and it's always going to be that way. And they've, they have completely lost hope. And studies tell us that 10% of adults in America are depressed. 10%, 1 out of 10. And so if those numbers hold true, that would mean in a crowd like we've got tonight, I don't have the count of the number. If we have 350 people in this room tonight, that would mean in this gathering there are 35 people who are depressed if those numbers hold true. That would be three dozen people have come to church tonight and you would say, John, you are describing me to a T. The circumstances of my life are such that I feel helpless. There's nothing I can do. I look to the future, I feel hopeless. I see no hope for anything changing. It has led to these feelings of sadness. I, like Churchill, have a black dog coming on my heels coming after me. A heavy fog has set in, and it's been a long time since I've felt joy, laughter, happiness, lightness in my spirit, looked forward to anything. And so I would say to you tonight, if you're one of those 35 people in here tonight who are struggling with depression, be encouraged on at least one point. Uh, you picked a good night to come to church because I'm dealing with what you're dealing with. I'm dealing with, in a public setting, what you're wrestling probably in total isolation and solitude. And so if you're one of those 35, let's just play like tonight. You and I are sitting in my office and you have told me your situation, and I have listened, and now I'm trying to give you some counsel from the Word of God on how you can come through this depression, how this fog can lift off of you. Remember the psalmist when he said, why are you downcast, O my soul, and why so disquieted within me? And then he said, put your hope in God. And that's what I want to help you to do tonight, to put your hope in God. We read in history that Martin Luther, the great reformer, the, uh, you talk about an influencer, was Martin Luther back in the 1500s. And Martin Luther had fits of depression. And one time he got so depressed and he couldn't snap out of it that his wife, Catherine, said, I've got, said to herself, I've got to do something to try, to try to help my husband. And so she went into her closet and she put on a black dress she put on black hose, black shoes, black gloves, and a black hat. She was dressed like she was going to a funeral. And she walked downstairs into the room where Martin was, and Martin looked at her and said, Catherine, who died? 
And she said, Martin, from the way you're acting, evidently God died. Because you're living your life as though God is no longer alive and on his throne. And God used that to catch his attention. And she said to him, listen, Martin, I know you're down. I know you're discouraged. I know whatever you're going through in your mind and in your heart is bad. But you have to remember, God's not dead. And so tonight, I'm going to give you a lot of material. I'm going to do it in a short amount of time. I don't want to depress you too bad by going on forever tonight. So it won't be long, but it will be thorough. I want to say to you tonight, at the very outset of this message, if you forget everything else I say, remember these three words. God's not dead. You believe that? Say amen. Say that with me. God's not dead. Turn to the person next to you and say those three words tonight. God's not dead. And so as long as God is still alive and as, God, as long as God is still on his throne, we need to live like it. And if we're, if we're just down and can't snap out of it, now it, I would say this, maybe you need to go see a doctor. I'm not a doctor, so I don't give much medical advice. I would have to know you pretty well before I told you some, what I think about certain medical things. And in this setting like this, I'm not going to play like I'm a doctor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Maybe sometimes a person is depressed because there's a thyroid issue. Maybe it's a, very, it's a physiological problem. Maybe there's some kind of a, of a hormonal or a chemical imbalance that has thrown you off. And just like sometimes people have to take medication for, for uh, high blood pressure or high cholesterol, maybe you need to take uh, something for your thyroid. Or maybe there's something that you could take. I would say on, on that, get, get a physical and get checked out. And if it comes back that definitely you're low on something and you need to supplement that, if, if you feel peaceful about that and your doctor feels peaceful about it, well, there would be nothing wrong with doing that. That would be the right thing to do. But I would say this. When you're in a doctor's office... And he says to you, or she says to you, you're depressed, I want to give you this pill. Here is my advice to you. Don't take that pill until and unless you are, first of all, convinced that you have received an accurate diagnosis. You may want to go to two doctors to make sure that the blood levels have been, that everything's right that they're telling you. And the second thing I would encourage you to do, once you're convinced that the report is accurate, you pray about it, and you make sure God gives you peace. Don't start taking something to treat that unless you yourself feel peaceful about it. And I would take it one step farther than that. Now, if your thyroid's out of whack, that's not even got anything to do with depression. It may cause symptoms of depression, but you're just having to take something to supplement your thyroid. So that's just, if your doctor says that and you feel good about it, take that. But I'm talking about stronger medicines that are purely and specifically for depression. In other words, you don't have a bad thyroid. You don't have a chemical imbalance. No, nothing has shown up on any lab work that explains why you're down. You're just down. And so your doctor gives you a prescription and says, if you'll take this, it'll perk you up. I'm not saying don't take it. I'm just saying before you take it, listen to what I'm going to say tonight and at least consider the possibility that it may be that you can come through what you're facing without taking that medication. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying don't take it. I'm saying don't just immediately take it without first giving God a chance to see what God might could do with it. Now, if you're already on a medication for that, and hey, many people are, there's nothing wrong with that. I would certainly say don't just get off of it tonight. If you ever decide to get off of it in working with your doctor, more than likely you would need to get off of that gradually 
slowly and let it taper out of your system. So I, I want you to hear the spirit in what I'm saying tonight. I'm just saying if a person is diagnosed with depression and there's no physiological cause for that, nothing's out of whack, you're just depressed, and you immediately go to the medication, it may be that you took the medication too early. And it may be that had you waited a little bit that God in time would have lifted some of that off of you and you wouldn't even have needed the medication. So that's as far as I'll go tonight into giving any kind of medical advice. But I think what I'm saying is right. I think it's true. And I think this. I think most doctors, probably not all doctors, I think most doctors who just heard what I said would say, you know, the spirit of what he's saying, forget their faith. I think they would say, the spirit of what he's saying is right. Before you get on a medicine that you might have difficulty getting off of, let's give God a chance. Let's give God a little time. And at the end of that, if you still need that medication, there's nothing in the world wrong with taking it. You take that medicine if that's what you need. But what I want us to think about tonight are the causes for depression. I want to mention three. And then the cure for depression. I don't want to just give the causes and then send you home because that would be bad. I want to give you the cure. First of all, Three causes. These aren't the only three causes, but let me mention three causes of depression. Number one, overwhelming circumstances. Overwhelming circumstances. In other words, sometimes a person goes through something that is so overwhelming, the death of a spouse, and, and I've seen this through the years in ministry. Somebody's married for a long time and their spouse dies, and they begin having extreme anxiety, and they can't sleep, and they can't eat, and they almost can't function, and that I mean, that is, a, that is a real thing. And so sometimes an overwhelming circumstance like that can just take the life out of you. Number two thing that can do it, physical exhaustion. Physical exhaustion. The great Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And so when you're tired physically and mentally, you're going to, have a, you're going to be more susceptible to battling some depression. And then another thing I think that can cause it is spiritual emptiness. In other words, our spiritual tanks begin to run on empty, and uh, we, we, maybe we have been busy serving the Lord, but we have not stopped to replenish our own uh, spiritual tank. We've been giving out. You know, I'm very mindful of this, like in, in what I do in my life. This morning, my dad and I preached a f- funeral uh, for Quay Wygant, as he said earlier, one of the godliest men we've ever known, and tonight I'm standing up before you doing what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm loving every, I'm loving, I love what I do. But I have to remind myself, as much as I love it, I am giving. In this 30-minute in this exchange, I am, I am pouring out of me, okay? Now, if I do too much of this, like if I just left here and went somewhere else and did this again, and then tomorrow I spoke at two funerals and then I did it again, and then Friday I did it again, well, there, there, there would come a point well, and and there, this has happened to me multiple times in my life where I have been so busy giving out that I've not actually taken the time to receive the energy and the strength of God back in. And that can cause some issues, if not depression, it can certainly cause a little bit of discouragement or dryness or something. And so I say that to you tonight, not, not so you'll feel sorry. Don't feel sorry for me. I love what I do. I'm saying in your life, you give out, you give, you give out your energy too. You may not do it like what I'm doing right now. I guarantee you this, if you raise kids, you're, exerting, you're expending a lot of energy. You're expending a lot of energy. And so you think about a, a stay-at-home mom who all day long has been with those kids. Well, that's the high, I, I would view that as like the highest calling in life. 
But in fairness to that lady, she's going to have to take some time to refill the tank somehow, some way, or else she's going to be in trouble eventually. So as we think about the causes of uh, depression, now we're in 1 Kings 19. Let's read a few verses here, and I will show you all of these things in the life of Elijah. All of these things. He had overwhelming circumstances, physical exhaustion, and then he had spiritual emptiness, and that's a deadly combination. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah had experienced a tremendous victory for God on Mount Carmel. I'm not going to go into that tonight, but he had had a mountain, literally a mountaintop experience. In 1 Kings 19, the king of Israel, a wicked man named Ahab, along with his wife Jezebel, devised a plan to kill Elijah. And so notice what happens, verse 1 of 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and also how he had executed all the prophets. That's the false prophets of Baal with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So in other words, Jezebel says, you're going to be dead within 24 hours. Now you would think that Elijah, the man of God, would have said, listen, ma'am, I serve the God of heaven and earth. You're not going to kill me till it's my time. You're not bluffing me. You're not intimidating me. You're not running me out of town. In the name of God, I stand firmly against you. That's what you would have expected from Elijah. But look in verse number three. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. He's running from this lady. And went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. That's around 70 or maybe a few more miles than that. He's on this long run. But it, verse 4, But Elijah himself went a day's journey, that's 20 or 30 more miles, into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And so there's depression right there. When you ask God to take your life, you're depressed. And that's where Elijah was. Now, what led to that depression? Those three things that I just, that I just mentioned to you. Overwhelming circumstances. The queen is threatening his life. I mean, you just think about if the, if the king of a country or the president of the country you lived in or the king, if his wife said, you're going down, that would overwhelm anybody. And then physical exhaustion, because back in 1 Kings 18, he had had this mountaintop experience where he won a battle for the Lord. And not only that, he's spiritually empty because on that mountain, Mount Carmel, he was, he was serving God. He was giving. He was pouring out of his own energies. But he did not take time to refill the tank. And so he became spiritually empty. And here he is. He is depressed. He's down. And he's asking God to take his life. Now, that said, I want us to think for the remainder of our time tonight, what is the cure for this? If I stop this sermon here tonight, we'd all be, I, I'm more depressed now than when I started. I need to go back and read that joke again that I had at the beginning because this kind of pulls us down. I'm just telling you what depression is and how we can, how we can have it, how it can happen to us. But now what I want to do is to give you the cure. And as I've thought about this this afternoon, when I say the cure for depression, that word cure, I don't want to say that flippantly or you know, disrespectfully and almost make it think like that I'm giving you a prescription tonight. If you go do these, these things that I'm about to tell you, it's going to lift away like that. More than likely, the depression you're battling didn't come on you overnight. 
probably came gradually, gradually, gradually. It probably began when you didn't even, wouldn't even have thought of it as being depression. You just thought, I'm tired. I'm not excited about the future. Life has gotten kind of boring. I feel overwhelmed with my work and family responsibilities. And so it was gradual. And so more than likely, that, that, that fog will lift gradually. Now, God can do anything. God could lift this off of you tonight but when, I, in the, when I'm giving you the cure. God may say something tonight through me to you, and your depression is gone. I would never say God can't do it immediately. I'm just saying more than likely, it will go away as it came on gradually, 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 and one day you'll just wake up, and you'll just have that, you'll feel, you, you'll just have that feeling where you say, I feel like my old self. I feel like I got my life back. I feel like I'm okay. I feel like me. And you'll know in that moment that this is lifted. And so what I want to do is we think about the cure, and I'm not going to belabor any of these, but I want to give you seven things that you can do to help you through your depression. Maybe that's a better way to say it. And hopefully to help you out of your depression so that you can move on and live a a better kind of life. Number one, get proper rest. That is so very practical, but it is so very important. Get proper rest. I think sometimes we overlook the obvious. Now remember, when God made these human bodies, He designed for us to sleep. And studies tell us we need, I mean, everybody's different on this. I got seven hours last night, and I'm feeling really good. If I would have gotten eight hours, I'd probably be feeling a little bit better, but I'm feeling fine. I mean, I'm feeling good. But somewhere between that seven and eight hours, I've noticed with me, some nights I might sleep four hours. Some nights I might sleep two hours. The other Saturday night, I think I may have gotten one hour of sleep. And I just couldn't, I woke up at, I went to bed at midnight, I think I woke up at one and I never went back to sleep. And when I got out of bed that morning, and I was preaching twice that day here, and I thought, God, it's going to be a long day because I only got one hour sleep. And I said, I need you to help me. And you know, when I was preaching that day, I had more energy and more power than I would have if I'd have slept 10 hours. It's only God can do that. And it was an anointed, God-blessed day in every imaginable way. But I'm saying this, if I tried to do that three or four nights in a row, I'm going to be in trouble. My throat starts getting sore. My mind starts getting unclear. My body starts aching. Now all of a sudden I don't feel good. And that kind of makes you down. And so I, I'm saying, hey, we all have a bad night's sleep every now and then. But you don't want to start not sleeping. You don't want to do that multiple nights in a row. So we have to get rest. Now to show you how practical this is, look in verse 5. Now here's Elijah. And he's saying, God, I'm ready to die. Take my life. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, that's what he needed was some sleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. So God sent an angel to where he was, and he didn't tell him anything spiritual. He didn't say memorize a verse or quote the 23rd Psalm. He he said, here's what you need to do, arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So Elijah had a pretty good deal there. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and he's, he falls asleep. God sends an angel, wakes him up, says, Eat. And God had already made the cake for him to eat. The angel had. And then he went back to sleep, and the same thing happened again. And so sleep is very important. And I would say this, Lombardi's right, fatigue makes cowards of us all. If you're, if you're living your life getting four hours sleep, 
every night. I'm telling you, I hope it doesn't. My concern for you would be that's going to catch up with you. I was talking to one of my dearest friends the other night who's a shift worker, works a lot of overtime, and he works. He's a, one of the hardest working men I've ever known. And he was saying to me, he said, uh, John, there are a lot of nights I only get three or four hours sleep. Some nights I only get two hours sleep. And I'm concerned because I think over the long haul that could be a dangerous situation. So the first thing I would say is make sure that you're getting the proper amount of rest. That is so important. Give you a verse to write down. Mark chapter 6 and verse 31. It says in the previous verses that the disciples of Jesus were so busy that they didn't even have time to eat. Mark 6.31, Jesus said, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest. And so we all need rest. There's no shame in that. And that's just how God made these bodies. The second thing I think would, would be a good thing for you, not only rest, but you need a relaxation escape. And I heard that phrase last Thursday night in a wonderful sermon by David Jeremiah at uh, a wonderful church in San Diego, California. He's getting close to 80 now, and he's just doing a great work for God. But he was talking about stress, and he was talking about the importance, not only of, he wasn't really talking about sleep as much as he was talking about, we have to have an outlet. We have to be able to relax. He was talking about his own life, that sometimes in his work, he feels just like you would in yours, the pressure, the intensity, and all the stuff coming in. And he said every afternoon at four o'clock, he goes on a jog. He goes jogging. And he said another thing he does that helps him to have a relaxation escape is he is a big sports fan. And when he said that, it grabbed my attention because I've always been a big sports fan. And he said that in his life, he has noticed if he will follow sports and watch some games. Now, you can't just sit home all day and watch ESPN. I mean, that will lead to being unemployed, so that wouldn't be a good idea. But to follow, have a team that you like or watch some sports. And he was t saying to his congregation that he had recently gone to the NBA All-Star Game. And he said, you know, I went to the slam dunk contest on Saturday night. I went to the NBA All-Star Game on Sunday. Took some he has vacation, took vacation doing that. And he said to his congregation, he said, I want you all to know, when I was at the NBA All-Star Game, I was not worried about the Sunday school attendance here at our church. He said, I was focusing on that game. But see, if you're a pastor, you do worry about Sunday school attendance. And you worry about everything in the church. And so sometimes you have to get away. Well, it's the same in your line of work. You're just worrying about different things. And so you have to have some kind of a relaxation escape. It doesn't have to be sports. Any kind of a hobby. In fact, in his sermon, he's quoted somebody who said, if you'll have a hobby and ride that hobby hard, whether that hobby is exercise, studying butterflies, collecting stamps, collecting coins, working in your flower bed, traveling, Whatever, working puzzles, whatever your hobby is. Marvin Zindler used to say, whatever makes you happy. So you find something that is a relaxation for you, and you have to do it long enough to get your mind off of whatever's causing you stress. And so I think that's what David Jeremiah was saying about a football game or a basketball game. It's going to last roughly three hours. And so if you watch that whole game, normally what I do with sports I'll get home at night, turn on ESPN, and in 15 minutes, I know who won every game. So I'm knowledgeable of sports. But that's not the same as sitting down and making yourself watch a game. And a lot of nights I get home, 
And I think, I'm not going to sit here tonight and watch a game. What a waste of time. Well, it would maybe be a waste of time to do that every night, but sometime we just probably need to watch a game and let our minds unwind. So you need a relaxation escape. Number three thing I would encourage you to do, do less. Do less. I would, I would take it one step further. This may not fit you, but I'll tell you something I'm, that I've been trying to do for the last two or three years. I've been trying not to multitask. I find for me multitasking is making me stressful. In other words, if I'm in my office on the phone with somebody, used to, I would be talking on the phone to somebody, answering emails, and somebody's walking in and asking me another question. And I wonder how come I get a headache. Or, you know, you do too much. So I would encourage you, don't multitask. I've, this is probably silly. I have cut down on how much I will talk on the phone when I'm driving in my car. I used to talk on the phone. If I was in my car, I was on my phone. And I'm not saying I'm never on my phone if I'm in my car, but I'll tell you this. As a general rule, the only people I talk to if I am in my car on the phone are people I feel so close to, and this is a very small group here, that if I hung up on them, they wouldn't get mad at me. Because sometimes if you're driving in traffic or something and you feel like, oh my, I need to pay attention to this, and you're in a deep conversation, now you're multitasking. You're doing this and you're doing this. I think a lot of people get involved in accidents because they're doing that. And certainly you should never text and drive. I used to do that too. And I just said, I got to quit this. It's not even safe. I'd be texting, driving, and all the things. And so I quit the texting and driving, and now I've just about quit talking on the phone. For some reason, it just stresses me out. Y'all don't think I'm getting older, do you? Getting stressed out over something like that? But it used to, if I was going to Dallas, I'd be on the phone from the time I left my house to the time I got to Dallas, and same thing back home. If I drive in Dallas now, if somebody called, I doubt I'd answer the call. And if I did, it would only be if I felt comfortable enough on that person to say, got to go, by." And that's a friend, by the way. Somebody you feel so comfortable with, you can hang up on them, and they, and they don't get mad, and they don't get worried about you. Because I wouldn't want somebody to put me under counseling just to say, hey, John, we got stressed out. He didn't want to talk on the phone. I'd rather be, I'm, I, this is my goal, and I'm, I, I don't always achieve it at all. My goal is to always be relaxed. And so anything that causes me to feel super stressed out, I view that as an enemy. And I address that enemy in the most appropriate way. And for me, multitasking is something that sometimes I still do it, but every time I do it, it stresses me out. So I would encourage you, just do less. If you'll do less, you'll do better whatever it is you're doing. Number four thing. I'm giving you seven things. Here's number four. Sit in God's presence. Sit in God's presence. Psalm 1611 says, In God's presence is fullness of joy. Say that with me. In God's presence is fullness of joy. So there's something about sitting in God's presence. It's similar to watching a ball game in this sense. It's making you focus on something else. It's better than watching a ball game because God is better than sports. When you sit in God's presence and you take a deep breath and you just begin to sit there, and I, I'll be honest with you, when I'm sitting in God's presence, and like I'm describing now, I don't say a whole lot. Because if I get in God's presence and I start trying to pray through a long prayer list, that itself can be overwhelming. I'm, I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm saying there, there's also a place for just sitting in God's presence and just looking up at the ceiling or looking at a picture or looking out at the sky and just say, God, I'm going to just sit here and ask you to speak to my heart. 
And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. But there's something about sitting in his presence that just calms us down. I think about what the psalmist said, Psalm 131, verse 2. He said, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. He said, I've calmed my soul. I've slowed my mind down. You know, sometimes our mind becomes flooded, flooded with thoughts. That's what anxiety is. It is a flood of thoughts, and they're coming into your mind so fast you can't deal with it. So you've got to slow that mind down. And we slow our mind down in God's presence. In His presence, it doesn't say in God's presence is stress and anxiety. No, in His presence is fullness of joy. There's something about God that just brings the blood pressure down, brings the stress level down. I would encourage you, most every day if you can, have a little bit of time just to sit in God's presence. Sometimes, you know, when you're driving to work or something, sometimes it's good not to turn the radio on. Because if you turn the radio on, especially me now, this may not affect you this way, if I listen to too much talk radio, it kind of gets my juices flowing. You know, you'll hear something politically and something somebody's doing, and you think, well, that's not right. They shouldn't do that. So now all of a sudden you're upset over about what somebody's doing in Washington that you have zero control over. And so, or, you know, sometimes it's just better to turn that off. See, if you just all day long flood your mind with information... That's why you're stressed out. You've got too much information in your mind. I don't want, you know, I, like I don't ever want anybody to give me an FYI. I don't need any, inf- I don't need that. I, I, I have my life, and if there's something I need to do to help somebody, then I want to know that. But I don't need to just know something for the sake of knowing it. It, doesn't, it just putting things in my mind that I can't do anything with. So, sit in God's presence. Number five thing that will be so very helpful and that is make a decision to trust God. Make a decision to trust God. And faith, you know, faith in God energizes us. Faith is our lifeline to God. I put my faith in God. I have a connection with calmness, with serenity, with peace. The Scripture says He Himself is our peace. And so you want to do that. So you just make a decision to trust God. How many points have I given you all, by the way? That was number five. Man, I'm getting stressed out now because I can't find out where all of them were. Let me just give you one. There's only going to be one more point. No, there was one I didn't write down. It came to me just now. This would be good. Let this be number six, and I'll give you seven, then we'll go home. Here's number six. I didn't put it in my notes. Have a friend. Have a friend that you can talk to, whether that's a family member. You know, family members are great. They know you better than anybody. Or maybe just a friend who's not even in your family. But somebody that you can let off a little steam to. Because I think one of the things that causes depression is when we isolate ourselves. And that just makes it worse. So you need an outlet. You need somebody that you can just say, here's what happened today at work. Or here's what my friend said or whatever. And just, you just need an outlet. So have a friend. What does it say in the Bible? Iron sharpens iron. And so, a depressed person is one who's become dull. Somebody who's sharpened is joyful. They're not depressed. So, have a friend. And then the last thing I would encourage you to do, get a fresh word from God. That may be the most important of all of these, get a fresh word from God. Now, look at, back in 1 Kings 19, look in verse number 8. That's what Elijah did. He was depressed, and he got his rest. He got his sleep. He kind of got caught up on that. And in verse 8, notice what it says. So he arose and ate and drank, 
And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. So he's going back to sleep again, getting some rest. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, why are you in a cave? Who told you to go run on a run like this and be in a cave? So Elijah said to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. That statement wasn't true. He was not the only true child of God in the area. But he felt like he was. Because he had isolated himself from other believers. Here he is in a cave all by himself. He said, God, the only person who loves you is me. And later on in the passage, if we would read, God would say, no, you're not the only person who loves me. You're not the only person who's going through a hard time. You're just one who is. But you've handled it all wrong, and that's how you got in this mess. And so in verse 11, God got involved, more, even more so, and God basically said to himself, I'm about to help Elijah out of this depression. Look what happened. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and, and after the fire, a still, small voice. Literally translated, a delicate, whispering voice. And so God said to Elijah, what I want you to do is I want you to go stand on this mountain. I'm passing by. I'm fixing to speak to you. There's this strong wind, strong earthquake, strong fire. God was in none of it. But then there came the still, small voice. You see, when you're depressed, the one thing that will lift that off of you more quickly than anything else is a word from God. Let me give you this scripture verse. Psalm 119 and verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. Beautiful verse in the Old Testament. It says, the entrance of your words gives light. In David Jeremiah's church there in San Diego, they have a stained glass window behind the pulpit. We have a beautiful cross behind ours here. But in theirs, it has that scripture verse the entrance of your words gives light to remind the people that they've come to church and they're going to hear the Word of God. Well, whether we put it in the stained glass window or not, it's a true verse. The entrance of God's Word gives light. And so what you need, if you're depressed, quite honestly, more than anything else, is a fresh word from God. You need God to tell you what to do. And if we had time tonight and we don't, time is up and I'm finished, I would tell you, about three or four times in my own life, I don't know that I would say I was depressed. I was confused. I was discouraged. I didn't really know what to do. Or maybe I was afraid. One of the times I was afraid. Maybe two of the times I was afraid. And God spoke to my spirit in a way that was unmistakably Him. Most every time God's done that to me, it's been with a scripture verse. Not every time. Sometimes God's just told me something else. But I look back on it, and most of the times when God has spoken to me when I was going through something and I needed, I needed help, it has been a scripture verse that God has spoken to my heart that has given me direction in my life, that's given me peace in my heart, that's given me joy, 
and it's kind of lifted whatever heaviness I might have had on me. And so I would encourage you, as you go from here tonight, especially if you're one of those 35 people who came in here with that heavy fog of depression sitting on you, I would encourage you to go home tonight and sit before the Lord and just say this to God. Say, God, I need to hear from you, and I'm asking you to speak. And then I would encourage you to just sit in silence for about 10 minutes. See if he tells you anything. He may or may not. When you wake up in the morning, do the same thing. Get in a regular Bible reading program or plan of some kind. Sometimes God will just speak to you through your quiet time. If you will ask God to speak, what does it say? What did God say in Jeremiah? You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so we want to say with Samuel to God, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Amen. Father, tonight I thank you that your word is so relevant to the day in which we live. God, in your word we find a, a real cure for depression. And I'm praying tonight that you will take something that we have thought about and use it, God, as a healing ointment, like a balm, a, a, a medicine, God, that would just begin to melt away depression, strong, heavy discouragement, helplessness, hopelessness, sadness, confusion, boredom, anxiety, fear, all these negative emotions that the enemy tries to put on us and God help us to live our lives walking in faith confidence in you expectancy that what you have for us tomorrow is even better than what we experience today because with you on your throne and with Jesus in our hearts we believe God that the best is yet to be Father I pray for that person tonight who is down, really down that by your spirit and by your word you would lift them up, bring them out of that pit. And I ask you to do it even tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, amen and amen.